For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, I know this is going to come to a shock, come as a shock maybe to many of you, uh, but just as a cold open intro, my marriage actually is a story of opposites attract. Let's get the easy one out of the way first. Andrew is tall and I'm average height. (laughs) Right? That's obvious enough. We can all see that. But there are some other, perhaps a little more subtle differences between the two of us. He's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. He cannot handle spice in any type of food. And I love a good hot sauce. At a wedding reception, you'll find him on the dance floor and you'll find me sitting quietly at a table. He's an eternal optimist who sees the good in everyone. And I'm what I'd like to call a hard realist. (laughs) But many of you may actually tell me that it's called being a pessimist. Either way, I own the label. Now, I'm telling you all this today, not just so you get to know us better or to ease you into this sermon, but I'm telling you this because I want you to appreciate that when I am preaching these words today, I'm preaching to you, but I'm preaching to me, too. The sword of truth cuts both ways, as it were. Okay, friends? Um, And at the heart of today's sermon is what it means to live a life of integrity for God and how we ought to live this out in the world. Because the truth is this. In Christ, we are all called to act as idealists for the kingdom of God. So let's get into it. Um, Fair warning, I am a Bible teacher at heart, so I will be referencing scriptures a whole lot. If you're the type who likes to read along and follow, find a pew Bible and get after it. But there's going to be a lot of referencing the text. Now, as Christians, it's very, very easy to say that we are called to live a different life than the others around us. We are the people of God, after all, right? And that comes with a certain set of expectations. Most of us have probably heard more times than we, are count, than we can count that we are told to live in the world, but not, not of the world, correct. But what does that even mean? Obeying God by living according to his word and his law. Now that's a great place to start. So start by looking in Deuteronomy 5 at the Ten Commandments, or perhaps even just focus on the summary of the law that Jesus gave us and we recite every day together, every Sunday I should say. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two law hang all the commandments, right? We say it every week for a reason, okay? It's an important one. But this is a really tall order, right? This is a hard place as our starting point. But it's exactly what our starting point is, and it's exactly the call that we are supposed to try to live out or die trying, okay? You can laugh a little. It's okay. We are called to embody living a life that is in line with God's holy example. And that is much easier said than done. Because we live in an inhospitable environment for such a life like that. In fact, 
Some people will even tell you right up front that holy living in a world like this is at best naive or at worst stupid or impractical. After all, you need to think about taking care of yourself. No one is going to give you anything. It's survival of the fittest out there. And if you want to survive, you better start playing the game. Holy living simply just doesn't work in the real world. Have you heard something like that before? Yes. Yeah. It's this tension that we feel as people of God living in this fallen world. We are being beckoned down two very different paths, okay? And one is easy, and the other is the one that we need to follow in order to follow Christ. But it's a much harder climb. In fact, it's so difficult that there are times where you think, I can't do it. I can't finish this path. A life of integrity requires us to be steadfast when it's all too easy and sometimes far more effective to compromise. Now, the type of moral compromise I'm talking about um, can look kind of insidious, okay? It can look like saying to yourself, would it really be so bad if dot, dot, dot? Or maybe the more justifying, you know, I'm sure it's fine that I dot, dot, dot. And just like that, you lost the game. You're more than halfway through the act of compromise, and it's probably in a way that you never really intended to compromise at all. Now, Jeremiah's life has much to share with us this morning if we have the ears to hear. His life was not an easy one, and his calling was a challenge to uphold. Jeremiah was called to serve as a prophet, this you know, hopefully, in Jerusalem to God's wayward people. And he was ministering in the time where the Assyrian Empire was oppressing them, and then it turns over into the Babylonian Empire oppresses the people of God. And why is that? Because they were disobedient. Okay? It's self-selected judgment for God's people. Um, Jeremiah is known as the little S's suffering servant. Okay? But I think that that's um, too often just a really quick way to dismiss him as a person. Okay? Um, his strength, his perseverance, are frequently overlooked because he had sad moments or hard moments. All right, uh, one of the most egregious forms of this, and you know, there's not, people are doing their best, but one of the most egregious was seeing a depiction of who the prophets were in children's ministries curriculum, and Jeremiah just had a frowny face. He's sad, and why is that? Because Jeremiah laments. He also wrote the book of Lamentations. But you're missing the lion of a man that was in front of you, if you just keep that in mind. So um, today, we heard from Jeremiah 15, all right? Um, and this portion of Jeremiah is a private conversation that's recorded for our benefit between Jeremiah and God. This is not a big, broad conversation. This is just the two of them, okay? And um, I found it quite surprising when I first read it. So if you're a Bible flipper, flip to Jeremiah 15, and we're starting in verse 15. I want to kind of go through what we heard today with a little bit of my own paraphrasing, okay? It starts like this. This is Jeremiah talking. Oh, Lord, you know. God, you know I'm telling the truth. You know me. 
He's, he's getting started. You can hear him warming up, right? Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name. God, you know I'm one of the good ones. I love your word. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone. I had nothing to do with that sort of people. And then he says this. Why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? A deceitful brook. That means a creek that's there when the water's high and not when it's dry. And if you need water and you go looking for it, it may not be there. So Jeremiah is really saying this. Why am I suffering for following your commands? Can I even trust you? He doesn't hold back, does he? There's a, here he is, and he's declaring his own faithfulness to God and to his commitment and fulfilling his role as God's prophet. And it's a meaty dialogue, but it boils down to this. God, I'm blameless, says Jeremiah. I've done what you've asked. Why won't you protect me? Was all that a lie? We may internally cringe at hearing this type of talk being directed at God, but haven't we all felt like this at one time or another? God, where are you? God, I'm holding up my end of the bargain. What about you? Let's be honest. Be honest. Haven't we felt it? Do you think that just because we haven't put it to words that God doesn't know that that's the content of our heart? Think again. Living a faithful life with integrity is hard. And Jeremiah knew this. He, in all of his writing, in all of his life, in all of his recorded ministry, okay, and we have two books of his, right? Jeremiah's message was only truly received and believed by two people, two, Baruch, his scribe, and an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech, an entire life of faithfulness, two, okay? How many others would have heard his words, saw his witness, and done nothing? Or worse yet, how many others did hear his witness and didn't like it? and wanted to silence it. Too many to count. Thankfully, it was up to God to determine whether Jeremiah was a success or not. Not up to the people, not up to Jeremiah. It was all based on what God said was a success or not. And trust us, trust me, I should say, God has a response to this, okay? He responds to him directly. We're gonna come back to that response, but we're gonna explore this theme a little bit first, okay? So let's now look at Psalm 26. It's a Psalm of David, which hopefully, you know, you know and have heard before. Um, and this, David has written a Psalm that features, uh, to my mind, what can be considered a template for how to walk in integrity before the Lord. Here, David lays out an example about what a life of faithfulness 
can look like, and it's in a list form, right? It's in poetry, it's in song, but it, it's in a list. Trust God, verse one. Practice faithfulness, verse three. Do not associate with liars, hypocrites, or evildoers, verses four to five. Live innocently, verse six. Praise God in gratitude, verse seven, and proclaim the gospel, verse seven. There it is. If you needed clear-cut instructions, right there, right there in front of you. Just because it's clear doesn't mean it's easy, but it is clear, okay? Now, as someone who has studied education once upon a time, I love that David chose to teach using a method that would have been in poetry and in song. He is utilizing all different kinds of um, skills that would help people to memorize stuff like this. These were songs that were sung together, yes, but it was also teaching. These words would be written on the heart and the mind. It would be learned in the body and practiced in the body, right? And it's, um, just as a side note, it's one of those things that it points me to that I'm most excited for in the new creation, that we get to learn all the songs of praise from all generations and all peoples. It's going to be a whole new song set, folks. And I'm very excited for that. But back to this. Um, this psalm, though, this is a list of how-tos or what you should do. And it is applicable to all of us, no matter what our own context is, okay? I find it interesting and really telling that this set of guidelines that David sets forth is a list of proactive choices. And not just proactive choices, but choices that are meant to be regular, repetitive choices, right? So take, for example, David's first suggestion, trusting in God. Is trusting God something that happens only once in a lifetime? I hope you're saying no, right? Or let's put it another way. Trusting in God is important in moments of intense fear or anxiety or any of the big stuff, of course. But as a believer, can you think of a single day where having trust in God is not going to be of benefit to you? Please say no, right? The answer is no there. That's an obvious one. Let's, let's look at this one next. When David states that he has not associated with liars or hypocrites or evildoers, this doesn't mean that he is setting up this expectation only for when people are watching him and that he thinks it's fine to dabble in a little dishonesty when no one's paying attention. No. Not what he's talking about either. It means maintaining a standard of honesty when interacting with people around you so that everyone else sees that you are someone who can be trusted. Okay? Likewise, I'll, I'll do one more. Living innocently. It's not a choice that you can make once for your entire lifetime of decisions and then never have to think about ever, ever again. Living with integrity requires us to make the right choices, the hard choices, and sometimes even the costly choices many, many times over in our lives. The psalm shows us that David understood that. He even ends the psalm by restating his intention to walk in integrity and to bless God. 
David is trying to practice what he preaches. This is sound advice. You can always come back to this psalm and think about what you need to do to get back on track with God. Okay? Integrity is the result of right living with God that is uncompromised. Okay? So the root word for integrity actually comes from the same word as intact or to be whole. And I think that that's a really brilliant way of understanding what it is that God wants from us. You see, God wants our all. I'm going to say that again. God wants our all, family. All right? He wants us all in. He wants every moment, every day, every breath to be in sync with him. God wants us to have integrity in every area of our lives. He wants us to be holy and entirely directed towards him. This is part of the reason why he is often referred to as a jealous God. He wants it all. But it is hard to do. Oh, is it hard. When our world seems to be coming apart at the seams, when sickness is rampant and medical care costs are so high, with violence spilling out in our homes and into our neighborhoods, with the quick promises of leaders who mean well, but discover that they will not actually be able to fulfill them when friends let us down or betray us, when our needs and our fears get behind the wheel and drive us to places that we never imagined we'd find ourselves to be. That is when integrity is needed the most. And it is precisely at this point that we are most in danger of failing in our witness and falling short in our promises to God. Not one of us will leave this world alive, family. Suffering and death is a guarantee on this side of the cross. If you haven't tasted its sting yet, praise God. And yet, the sad truth is, you will. In the face of all the worst that this life has to offer, we must choose to live differently. We must choose to embrace a fuller reality, a better picture than what this is on its own face value. And the reality is that that vision is insanity to everyone else who doesn't buy in. Like, you can't sugarcoat that. Some people will think you are crazy. Some people will think this is a delusion. There's no way around it. And this is what Paul, I think, is speaking of when he speaks of us presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the first verse, Romans 12, 1. We heard that today. You know, we're not expected to offer sacrifices the way that people needed to in the Old Covenant. But we are called now to live a life in a manner that is sacrificial. We are called to live a life that's in such a way that it looks like we're putting to death our old selves daily and that it can be displayed that any new life that we have, anything that you're seeing, can be understood as a gift from God and nothing else. Because I don't know about you, but I find this true. We cannot edit out the unsavory parts of ourselves. Right? 
to be able to present ourselves as the most ideal or perfect version of who we are. We can't do it. And if we try to do that while representing Christ, it's bound to fail. Okay? When we get to know one another, when we, see, when we share life with people, when we see them at work or at school or in our communities, people will get to know us and see for themselves the consistency or the hypocrisy by which we live. And we are called to live so that others see a better way of living in Christ. Let's look at Peter today in the gospel reading. That's Matthew 16, if you're flipping. Jesus is at a turning point in his ministry where he is transitioning from preaching and teaching and healing out in the countryside, and he has now fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. And he is preparing himself and his disciples for what's about to come next, his suffering, his passion, and his death. And he's trying to tell them what's about to happen. He's trying to tell them. This is the first time they're hearing it. <clears throat> and they don't know what to do when he says this. It doesn't make sense to them. They can't wrap their minds around it. So much so that Peter outright rejects it and decides to take Jesus to the side and rebuke him. It's astounding how quickly Peter goes from the highs to the lows, isn't it? Just last week, he was the one who understood and proclaimed, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. He's given the keys to the kingdom and renamed Peter, the rock. And now, so soon after, Jesus turns to him and offers him what you can arguably say is the harshest rebuke in all of scripture. Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. <clears throat> it's certainly easy to understand from Jesus' perspective why Peter needs to be corrected as definitively as he does. This is no minor detail to quibble over, okay? Um, Jesus knows that his great rescue plan, God's great rescue plan, is a plan that requires Jesus himself to live blamelessly and then selflessly sacrifice himself for us, enduring steadfastly all the pain and the shame and rejection that this world has to offer. It's natural to want to avoid consequences. It's natural to want to avoid pain or suffering or rejection. I don't know anyone who looks forward to death. No one wants to experience any of these things. But the call to eternal life in Christ is a call that takes us through our own walk to the cross to step into the fullness of life that we were always meant to live. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, lose, would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That, friends, is all of our invitation, and it's all our challenge. Again, it's all or nothing. And sometimes, maybe even most times, we fail, point blank. We miss the mark. Paul says that we are not to think of himself or herself more highly than we ought to, but to think 
with sober judgment. That's Romans 12.3. We've got to be honest with ourselves, sometimes painfully so, and assess whether we are doing what we have been called to do or not. Now, I told you we get back to Jeremiah and God's conversation, right? This is what we're going back to now. So we're going back to Jeremiah 15, and we're starting with God's response in verse 19. If you were surprised by what Jeremiah said, it might surprise you on a closer reading to hear what God is saying. He starts with a pretty um, unexpected response to Jeremiah. If you return. If you return. Now, this isn't God speaking to his people in general, who are wayward, and we know this. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Faithful, steadfast, long-suffering Jeremiah. And it is to him that God is calling him to come back to himself. So the question you have to ask yourself is this. If Jeremiah was as faithful to God and to his call as he proclaimed himself to be, why is God calling him to turn back and repent? Why? We have no recorded examples of Jeremiah failing on the job. He doesn't tell us that he did. There were other prophets alive at the time. None of them were called to rebuke Jeremiah for falling down on the job. So that's not the problem here. So what is going on? I believe, it's my belief that this is an example of a faithful servant with an imperfect heart. Because Jeremiah certainly has been faithful to God, but only God knew what was going on in his heart. Only God did. In my opinion, God is making Jeremiah aware of this disconnect and is calling him back into the fullness of integrity which righteous living requires. God also reassures Jeremiah that if he does this, if you return, God will save him and deliver him and redeem him. If you, then I. That's promise language. That's covenant language from God to Jeremiah. Notice that God doesn't promise Jeremiah that suddenly he's going to become wildly successful or that people are going to stop bothering him. No. In fact, God states in verse 20, this people will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you. God's faithfulness to Jeremiah, his promises to him are that he will restore Jeremiah, he will continue to use him as a prophet. He's going to strengthen him to withstand dealing with people who are difficult. And he's going to deliver him out of the hand of the wicked. Jeremiah needs to repent now and commit to faithful obedience to God, which is significant. Let's not downplay that. We've heard about how hard that is. But all the heavy lifting every other part of that is being done by God himself. Our faithfulness is important, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to God's faithfulness to his people. 
And I love this example because even back then, way before Jesus' earthly arrival and his ministry, even in the Old Covenant, at the end of the day, all our hope boils down to God, who he is to us and his faithfulness to us. Praise God that that is the last word in our stories. God is faithful, and that is enough. Jesus is the firm foundation, our cornerstone, and because of his faithfulness, I and you are redeemed. This is what Paul is getting at in the second part of our passage from Romans 12. We are all uniquely made and gifted, and we are called to serve as the body of Christ. But this vision is one of unity, not uniformity. Unity, not uniformity. That means that I don't have to be you and you don't have to be me. But we all have to be faithful to God, and we have to be united in that. So the point here, I guess gently saying it, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Joy, stay in your lane. Everyone, stay in your lane. Do the thing that God has set before you to do. Do it to the best of your abilities. Be steadfast in that call. Don't just do something because you see that it should get done. Pray about it. Ask God, is this for me to take up? If you can, even ask for confirmation from others in the body before you act on it. And while we're at it, let's try to remember that just because you may have the gifting doesn't mean that you can act without consideration for those around you. Remember the fruits of the Spirit? My kids, uh, we have songs that help us remind these things at home. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. No matter what your gift is, friends, no matter what you think God is asking for you to do, the work of the Holy Spirit is never going to contradict the nature of God. It doesn't work like that. Okay, so we almost all have an example. This is where it goes awry, okay? We almost all have an example of someone telling us something because we needed to hear it. And maybe you've even heard something said like, I'm telling you this, but I want you to know that this is spoken in love. Mm -hmm. You know where I'm going. But just because something is true and just because it needs to be said doesn't mean that however it is brought up is loving or is in line with the example that Christ sets for us. Those things don't count. You can say, I say this in love and still be a total jerk. Okay? So we need to be... We need to be united in ourselves. We need to be fully focused on God so that as we exercise our gifts, we're not misrepresenting him, okay? Having integrity doesn't mean saying every true thought that comes to mind or attacking every wrong idea or going out there vigilante style and righting every wrong. Who saves? Is it Peter? Is it Paul? No, it is Jesus, okay? So we need to stay in our lanes, all right? We need to stay in our lanes, and we need to know what we're being called to do before we set out to do it. 
And when we act, we had best be acting in line with Christ's example. The stakes are too high. So this week, I'm wrapping up here. I want you all to, and me all, me all too, to think about some of these questions and examine your life and, and try to answer these honestly. And maybe talk to God about it. Okay? Some of the questions I came up with. What kind of person are you? Who is God calling you to be? Am I living a life of integrity? Would someone recognize me as being a Christian without knowing me? Have I compromised something that I shouldn't? And if the answer is yes, why? These are hard questions, guys, and they're questions that I'm pointing at myself, too. But I want you to know that no matter what the answers are to these questions, we are all called to live out the ideal which is set out by Jesus himself to follow, whatever our unique context is. Okay? I want you to also take heart. If these answers are less than ideal, and I know that some of them are less than ideal for me, I want you to not give in to despair or to feel like a failure. You have to be honest about the failure that happened, but I want you to know that it is a chance for you to turn, just like we ask, just like God asked Jeremiah to do. He wants you to turn, and he wants you to embrace greater integrity and trust him for all the rest. Okay. Because we know that all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Amen. Amen.